I'm going to continue the series that we've been on regarding the bridal paradigm. And it's just appropriate. Somebody goes, it just almost feels schizophrenic. You're going to go and do an intimacy message right now? Absolutely. Because we don't know, uh, we don't know his heart unless we uh, lean into intimacy and the understanding of his heart. And we can't pray and intercede unless we know his heart. So we go into intimacy that reveals the heart of Jesus to us. And it's in that place that we find what's important to him and what's moving on his heart. And from that place, we were able to pray with truth and with authority when we find what's moving on his heart. So intimacy and intercession, they work hand in hand. And the bridal paradigm is absolutely essential. He's the husband that wants to share everything with his wife. He's not the husband that kind of comes home from work and goes, you know, she goes, how are you doing today, honey? And he goes, oh, fine. Well, what happened today? Oh, not much. Any, anything happened? Oh, not really. No, that's not him at all. He wants to release something called the spirit of prophecy that's the testimony of his heart. He's looking for a people who will, you know, traverse the pain of coming into the revelation of the heart of God. He's the one that's acquainted with the cries of every prisoner. And he's looking for friends that will find themselves, like Andrew was saying, resting their head upon his chest so they can hear the beatings of his heart and they can come in intimacy into union with what's moving on the heart of Jesus. And I think about Jesus in the garden. Could you not tarry one hour? He was looking for friends. And I tell you today, he's still looking for friends. And we are able to come into intimacy through finding out what the scripture says about the way he feels and the way he thinks and changing our lens because we don't comprehend this, that we have so many lenses over our eyes that, that um, pervert the way that we see God. And the way that those lenses are removed is by understanding his heart towards us. And so we, we have a skewed image of God and therefore we don't pray. We don't live righteously because we don't know the way he feels and what's upon his heart. But when we get the lenses that are blurring our image of God removed, we begin to see him as he is, all of a sudden our heart begins to move in rhythm with his heart. Our hearts beat to the rhythm of his heart. What's moving in him, the things that are, that are uh, upon his heart, the, the issues that are burning in him, they begin to burn in us. And we live in that place of, of beautiful Union, terrifying intimacy. It's costly intimacy. And so that's the bridal paradigm. It takes us to that place. It takes us to that place of standing with him as his beloved, learning to trust him, knowing him as he is, and then getting the, the revelations of his heart revealed unto us till it moves us and changes the way we think and the way we act and changes what's important to us in this life. Oh, that he would have a people that live totally in sync with his values, that all that's important to them are, are the very things that are important to him. That's through intimacy, only through intimacy that it comes. So what I want to do is 
over the next two weeks, I want to I take us through in a very introductory and, and uh, sort of just general way, I want to take us through this, the Song of Solomon. This, this portion of the Bible is uh, one of the most essential books in the Bible in my mind. I, uh, probably five years ago, if, somebody, if I would have come to a meeting and the guy said, man, the Song of Solomon is one of the most essential books in the Bible, I would have just been like, you know, right. That, that funky, you know, sort of poetry, that is not the most essential. Give me Romans. You know, give, give me Ephesians. Give me something that matters. And uh, over the last five years, the Lord has deconstructed and reconstructed me as it relates to this book. And this book, beloved, if you've never spent a season in the book of Song of Solomon, you must. It is must read Christianity. It is must study Christianity. And the reason why is this. It is our story. The, the love song, the song of songs, it is our story. We live in the pages of this, of this book. We don't comprehend the story because what will happen is we get lost in a little bit of the imagery. We don't understand how vital this is to, to knowing how to uh, process our path in Christianity. But our path, our experience is written right there in the pages of this book. And there's seasons in our life that mirror the exact seasons that the maiden in the Song of Songs goes through. It is our story. And I've probably, over the last five years, come to see my life as um, more identified by this uh, book of the Bible than any other book. It's, It's absolutely stunning because I see myself in the pages of this book, and it's our story. It's your story, it's my story. And so my, my strong admonition to you is if you've never spent any time in Song of Solomon studying it, you really, really, really need to take six months, minimum, and just lean into it. Lean into the, past the symbols and see what the Lord will say to you through the book of Song of Songs. All right, so what I wanna do is, I wanna take us through the first four chapters tonight. And I, and I want to lay it out for you so you can follow the storyline. We have several main characters. The main characters, uh, we'll just talk about three of them. We have the, the king, who's Solomon, and he represents Jesus. We have the maiden, and she represents you. And then we have the daughters of Jerusalem, and they represent uh, Christians who are lukewarm about the way they feel about the bridegroom. Now, we don't ever say, well, that group or that denomination, they're, they are uh, the daughters of Jerusalem. We don't ever think like that. We just know that in, in the journey in the Lord that some are closer and some are further. And so in a g- very generic way, the daughters of Jerusalem represent those that are um, you know, immature in their walk with the Lord. The trick for you in understanding Song of Solomon and having it impact your heart is this. It's moving away from thinking of the bride as this large group and boiling it down to it being you. And that's the way we want to deal with it when we, when we interpret it. We don't want to think of it, the bride, while the bride of Christ is a large group, the way that, that this book impacts the heart in the greatest way is if you put yourself uh, right there in the pages and see that the book is talking specifically about you. 
while it's talking about the global bride, all the things that apply to the bride apply to you. And so that's the way that this connects and, and, and moves the heart in the greatest way. All right, so I'm going to go through in a very general way the first four chapters. And for those of you that are taking my class on Song of Songs, God bless you. You're just getting a little bit of refresher, and next week you'll get a little bit of a hint of where we're going over the, in the last part of the class. For those of you that aren't taking my class, you ought to take my class. We'll offer it again. I don't know if it'll be in the first or uh, probably the second semester. We'll see. I don't know. But we'll offer it again next year. All right, let's look at verse 4. This is the maiden speaking, and she says this. Draw me after you, and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She is uh, on, the, on the very first phase of her journey with the Lord, and she's uh, beginning to fall in love. And she prays this twofold prayer. And the twofold prayer is, draw me away and let us run together. Draw me away and let us run together. The draw me away is talking about having your heart completely drawn away and allured in the revelation of his love. It's coming to the understanding that God is a bridegroom God and he is radically in love with you. He's in love with us as a people, but he is intensely in love with you. And she's saying, draw my heart away. Let my heart comprehend. Let my heart understand the way you feel and the way you think about me. You know, I did ministry for years. And I, and I can say I had moments where I felt the nearness of God and, and understood his kindness and his love towards me. But I, I can remember the very first season of my life when the Lord drew me away. When he, when he really drew me away. It was the beginning of uh, 2003. And I, I remember hearing this message that God is a bridegroom God and that he loves you. And, and that he loves you even in your weakness. And that he believes your love is real. And man, when I heard that, I remember it just messed my life up in, the, in a big, big, big way. And, uh, you know, I have people that were involved in, in the ministry that, that I used to lead that are here with us at IHOP, and, and they'll refer to me as, you know, before and after as it relates to getting this revelation. It jacked me up in an awesome way. And I remember, understand that God loved me, and he thought my love was real. And it, it, for three months, I walked around with a smile on my face, just telling anybody, hey, man, I just love you. I mean, no, no, I really, I love you, bro. No, but you and me have a problem. No, no, we have no problems. <laughs> I love you. No, but don't you think we need to work some stuff out? Hey, whatever I did wrong, I am so sorry. Tell me. Yeah, I did that. I am so sorry. I love you. And I literally, for real, had every issue from my side. It was all resolved in a short moment. I mean, I, I fell in love with Jesus, and therefore I fell in love with the ones that he loved. And I didn't have a problem with anybody. I, I just loved him. 
When I found out God loved me, it changed everything. That's the draw me away. If you've never had a draw me away season, oh, you need one. You need a draw me away season. And then the second part of her prayer, let us run. She goes, draw me away and let us, let me and you run together. And all that's in your heart. Now she is completely immature at this part of the song. She's going to go through eight chapters of coming to maturity. But the very first thing on her heart is the very first thing on his heart. He wants to allure her in love and he wants her to run together with him in ministry. And she prays the very prayer that's on his heart. He, she says, allure me in love, draw me away, and I want to run together with you. I want to partner with you in all that you desire for me to do. And that, beloved, is the first and second commandment right there. Love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. It's being drawn away in love with God unto rightly loving everyone else in this life. And here's what we try to do. We try to do the let us run together without ever having lived draw me away. And people will... Go hardcore, doing, 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 doing ministry. And they, what they find is they, they can, there's so much ministry to do, they can do ministry all day, every day. And they find themselves living a life doing all these things for God without any intimacy with God. Here's the thing, we're supposed to live in the draw me away while we're running together with him. If you get the first commandment in first place, you'll find that your whole life will hit a rhythm that is so totally different than if you have the second commandment in first place. And, and most of the time, we don't just have the second commandment in, in, in first place and the first commandment's in second. We have the second commandment in first place and the first commandment's about number 10. We want to love our, you know, our neighbor, we want to love everyone and do ministry real hardcore, and loving God is sort of the thing you do like before you go to bed. I mean, I know, I know people in ministry that their prayer life consists of a minute before they get up and a minute before they go to bed, and they do ministry all day long. They don't even know why they're doing it. They need draw me away. That's what they need. They need their heart to be drawn away in love. And when we do the second commandment first, we get burned out and bruised and broken in this life. God doesn't want his bride to live burned out, bruised, and broken. He wants her to live alive and flowing in love with a heart that's open and moving back and forth, experiencing delight and pleasure in the love of God. And then that is the bride that he wants to uh, release upon the nations to minister his love. I got shocked after I'd been in ministry for 12 years that I didn't know God loved me. I knew the language, but my heart didn't resonate with it. There's a far cry difference between knowing the language with your head and having an experiential understanding with the love of God impacting your emotional chemistry. That's so, so different. You can say all the right words, but never have your emotions impacted by his love. And I did ministry for years and years and years, running with the Lord, but never really having a, I'm drawn away with him. Always thought he was sort of angry with me. Always thought I was never measuring up. Never comprehended that he loved me in spite of, and even in the place of weakness. 
that my weakness and my sin didn't freak him out. Which takes us right to the very next verse. In verse 5, we get the beginning. This is the point one understanding of God's love. Point one, if you don't comprehend this, I, I promise you, you don't really know his love yet. It's okay, don't worry about it. Don't feel scandalized if you don't. But I'm just telling you, if you don't get this point yet, then you really don't know his love yet. And this is what she said. She says, I am dark but lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. And what she's saying is this, that I am dark. She goes, I have issues of sin. I have issues of, of, uh, in my life of challenges. I'm immature and I'm prone to sin. Yet, God believes and God sees me as beautiful. He loves me. He is attracted by me even when I choose sin. Now most people believe this. They believe God loves them when they don't sin. And he's sort of angry with them when they do sin. That is completely not scriptural. For God so loved the who, so they weren't sinning, I guess. No, God so loved the sinful world who was rejecting his son. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the sinful world, rejecting his son, shaking their fist at God. He so loved them, he was so in love with them, that he offered his son Jesus for them how much more you and I we have said yes to Jesus yet we're immature see there's roughly 600 million Christians in the earth give or take there's 6 billion give or take people in the earth so that means that 1 out of 10 people in the earth has said yes to Jesus 1 out of 10 you boil it down like this. If you've said yes to the Lord, you're one out of ten in the earth. Imagine Jesus walks into a room. There's nine people in you. He walks in, nine people turn their back, and there's you looking at him. He is the God who is love itself. He's looking for someone to love, and you're the only one staring at him. He's radically in love with you. He doesn't look at you and go, you know, I know those other nine turned their back, but you've got so many issues. I'm so angry with you. I can't love you. He goes, I know you better than you know yourself. Those ten things that are on your list that you think you're doing wrong, he goes, I'm not even really talking to you about those. He goes, those are actually all self-condemnation. He goes, there's these other few that I'm going to talk to you about in a minute, but the main thing I need you to know is I love you. I'm so in love with you. Here's when the dark but lovely, when it actually has to, when we actually have to live it. It's not when you're feeling lovely, it's when you're feeling dark. This is how you know if you know God's love. When you're feeling dark, do you think he loves you? When you've blown it, when you're in the middle of blowing it, do you think he loves you? Hello. When you're on 285 at 5 o'clock, and the car cuts you off, and you use some figurative language to describe your emotional state. 
in that moment, does he love you? He absolutely does. See, dark but lovely does not work when you're feeling lovely. It's, the point of it isn't when you're feeling lovely. The po- point of it is when you're feeling dark, knowing that he loves you. He loves you radically and intensely even when you're in the middle of choosing poorly. Now, it doesn't mean that he loves sin. He's the God that doesn't like the activity of sin, but is radically in love with you. And that's point one of understanding God's love. That even when you're not doing right, even when you're manifesting immaturity, even when you've chosen wrongly, that you still know he is radically in love with you. See, when we have that comprehension of his love, we will run right back to him instead of running away from him. How many times when we have sinned and chosen poorly do we feel like we've sort of got to just muster up the penance to sort of give God a chip? We show him, look, I'm trying really hard. Can you please help? Just take me back. I swear I won't do it again ever. God, help. He goes, could you like stop that? I really, really love you anyway. No, I'll prove it. I'll prove it. I'm lovely. I promise. He goes, no, no, I, you don't get it. I see how dark you really are, and I'm not freaked out. See, you only have a little bit of a revelation of how dark you are. He's got the whole enchilada. No, he really knows. You only know this. He knows that. He goes, I know that, and I don't care. I love you. This is our bridegroom God. And see, it's the very revelation of dark but lovely that draws us out of sin rather than emboldening us in sin. Somebody says, well, if you preach the grace of God that way, then people just think they can just sin all they want. No, 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 it's completely opposite. When you realize that God is radically in love with you, even when you sin, that he really is radically in love with you, the last thing you want to do is go mess with sin Because you want to connect with this God who's radically in love with you. So skip on down to verse 15. He takes her through this little journey of explaining to her how she can come out of this darkened state. And he's telling her the whole time, I love you. You're beautiful to me. And then he says this, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. She immediately answers, verse 16, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, you are pleasant or pleasurable. Also, our our bed is green. Here's here's how it goes with him. She hasn't even done a thing yet. All she's done is said, help me. I am dark and I need help. And he begins to tell her how beautiful she is. And she begins, her heart begins to move. Something begins to happen on the inside of her. She begins to get tender. And she begins to not desire the darkness and the sin anymore. She begins to desire him. And he begins to answer before she's done anything. You are beautiful. You are fair. Can you comprehend the God that looks at you before you even lift a finger? And he says, you are Before you do anything to earn his approval, he says, you are 
absolutely stunning. You are fair. And then he goes, my love. And in there we find out the way that the bridegroom God always talks to us. How do you think God talks to you? How do you feel like he talks to you? You stupid, why'd you do that? You idiot. That was dumb. I mean, do you think that's the voice of the Lord? Some people wouldn't put it that, that, you know, that wrong. They would just make it like this. You know, sort of, Billy, you know that was wrong. Now change before I smite you. God doesn't have a King James accent. Thou hast broken my laws. I shall smite thee if thou does that another time. No. Here's how he, he talks every time. In fact, throughout the entire Song of Solomon, every time the bridegroom speaks to the maiden, every time he says one or both of these, you are beautiful, my love. He says, you look good, and I love you. Every time. How does God speak to you? I guarantee you it's the way the Bible portrays it. It's not the way it sounds in your head. We have so many lenses that, that screw up the way that we comprehend God. And I tell you, your lens that tells you that he's speaking to you with anger, that he's speaking to you with dissatisfaction, that he's speaking to you with you know, that performance edge, if you would just do better, then I could bless you. He, no, he doesn't speak to that. He goes, hey, you're beautiful. She goes, I'm, I'm, I'm dark. He goes, you're beautiful. He goes, and I love you. She goes, I haven't, I haven't done anything. He goes, I love you. Every time he speaks to you, he establishes it. You look good, and I like you. Every time he corrects you, hey, you, you look so good. I like you. I love you. Now let me talk to you about this little issue. Let's get it straight. See, our comprehension of how he communicates to us Many times we don't believe him to be a bridegroom that loves us. We believe him to be an angry God who is dissatisfied, mostly angry with us. And it's not at all the way God communicates. God communicates through that lens of you look good and I like you 100% of the time. You go, hey God, I just have this, um, I just, he goes, hold on a second. You look so good. Have I told you I like you? Yeah, but I've just, I've got this issue. He goes, oh no, 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 you didn't hear me. You look good, and I like you. Um, yeah, but God, you don't understand. I'm, I sent, he goes, um, <clears throat> wait. You look good, and I like you. You go, I do, and you do? He goes, oh, so much. So you already know about that? He goes, uh-huh. You go, well, I didn't want to do that again. He goes, I know. He goes, that's, that's good. You go, so I'm, not, I'm turning away from that. He goes, you look so good. And I really like you. And good choice. That's how he communicates. I love it. All right, so Song of Solomon chapter 2. Verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me. Oh, oh, oh I skipped ahead. When you get that down in in your heart that whenever he communicates to you, you look good and I like you, when you get that down in your heart, guess what, the way you communicate to him, just the way that she did. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. 
when the, when the revelation of God's love impacts you and you get that he loves you and he says you're beautiful, you go, oh, you're beautiful and I love you. We love him because he first loved us. Do you understand that staying out of sin is like so easy when you fall in love? When you fall in love, the last thing you want to do is break the heart of your beloved. It's the last thing you want to do. When you're in love, the last thing you want to do is trample on the emotions of the one you love. You're moved in heart. And we are loved by the one who is love itself. And when he expresses his love to us, the normal way that human hearts are supposed to respond and that they do respond is when they comprehend the love of God to them, they respond back with love. We love him as a result. That's the way you can read that verse. As a result of knowing that he loves us. When you understand that he thinks you're beautiful and that he loves you, you will say back to him, you are handsome, my beloved. You are handsome. All right, verse four of chapter two. He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Here's what's going on with her. This uh, maiden is being continually allured. She's being dazzled with love. She's experiencing what it means to comprehend that she's beautiful to him. In verse 1, she says, she goes, I'm like a lily in the valley. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand how beautiful you are. You're like a lily among thorns. Do you know when God looks at you, he goes, you are beautiful. He goes, oh, not just like a little beautiful. He goes, you are as beautiful to me as a lily is compared to a thorn bush. He goes, you're my favorite. You're captivating me. That's what he's saying. And she begins to comprehend it just a little bit. And she's, she's like, his banner over me is love. What's that mean? That means every time he speaks, it's love. Everything he says, it's love. All his purposes for me are love. Can I tell you something? All God wants to do with you is love. So many think God's got them on this leash with a whip. Do for me. Fulfill your purpose. Do. Do. And you know what it becomes? Do-do. Do, 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 do. I don't want to do Christianity anymore. I don't want do-do Christianity. I don't want, I don't want that. I want the purpose for, I was cre- for which I was created. Do you know why you were created? You are created to be loved. You weren't created to do something for God. He's got 10,000 times 10,000 servant angels. Why would he need an ant to help him? He's surrounded in perfection of worship all day long. You're not even created to quote unquote worship. I appreciate the t-shirt, but that's not why he made you, to just bow. He created you to be the object of love to flow back and forth with him in love. Because you can say no, you are the only thing under creation that you are able to flow rightly in love with him. Because you can say no, it qualifies you to say yes, and it's real. The fact that you have choice makes love that flows between you and God real. 
She goes, his banner over me is love. Everything he says is love. All his desires for me, it's love. The message over my life, it's love. And then she says this, sustain me and refresh me. She goes, I don't ever want to leave this place, so just let's keep it here. Sustain me in love, and if it ever starts to wane, refresh me. Bring me back to the revelation. You know what? You know why that's in the Bible? Because you're allowed to pray that. Somebody would have you to think, well, you get enough of the love thing on you, and then you just go, do. No, you're allowed to pray, sustain me. Refresh me. And then she says this. She goes, because I am lovesick. You know what God's purpose for your life is? To bring you to lovesickness. You know what that means? That means you come to this place where you experience the love of God so heavy, so deeply, that you realize there is absolutely nothing else in life that you could possibly want. You are overcome and overwhelmed with this. You've been ruined by love. You don't want anything else. How about a million bucks? No, no, I just, I'm lovesick. No, 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 what, what we'll do is we'll make you famous. No, I, I want love, I'm, I'm lovesick. We've got some relationships for you. I'm telling you what, this relationship, you'll be so happy. No, I'm, I'm lovesick. He wants to take his bride to love sickness. You know why? Because when she's lovesick, when the bride is lovesick, she will stay through every challenge that comes her way, pressing on towards him, because she won't get veered off when challenges come. Why? Because she's got a desire, and her desire is God. Her desire isn't another platform. Her desire isn't some earthly thing. Her desire is this. Her heart is lovesick, and the only thing that will satisfy is him. He wants to take 100% of his bride to lovesickness. This is our journey. A lovesick bride won't stop when it gets hard. A lovesick bride, she won't be interested in another lover. She's in love. Verse 8. One of my favorite parts of the book. She's been being fed with cakes and raisins and she's been sustained and refreshed. She's, she's got the banner over her as love. She's lovesick, she's wrecked. The scene changes. The voice of my beloved, he comes. Leaping upon mountains and skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a young stag or a gazelle. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said, rise up, my love, my fair one. There he said it again. You're good looking and I love you. Rise up and come away. What's going on here? Where he's only before, he's only showed up as a, as a lover and she's experiencing the romance of God. Now he comes as a conquering warrior. And she's never seen him that way. He shows up ready to subdue mountains. She sees him skipping on mountains and hills. The mountains represent principalities and powers and earthly kingdoms. And rather than him showing up as this romantic, now he shows up as the king of the nations. 
She thought she was having a wonderful summer with a new love at the beach, and he shows up in full headdress and armor and a sword in his hand and says, my father is the king of the northern kingdoms. He's called us together to go and subdue the southern kingdoms. Will you come with me and trod them down with my father's armies? She goes, uh, what about the cakes and the raisins? She knows it's his voice, but she's never seen him like this. I love Song of Solomon. It's got teeth. This is no mamby-pamby sort of, you know, the, that's sort of the sweet book for sort of the sweet people. You know, it's not like that. This is like, oh, my gosh. He's going he's gonna to, like, subdue the nations. And he goes, my bride, I want her with me doing that. Come away, come away, rise up, my fair one. He goes, you're beautiful, I love you. Now come, rise up. He's answering the second part of her prayer. He's drawn her away, and she said, now let us run together. He goes, come on, let's run together. And she understands that her heart is not ready. Verse 16 she makes this statement. She goes, my beloved is mine and I am his. I know it. But verse 17, but until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. Bether means separation. She says, all the shadows in my life have to flee away. All the gray areas, all the dark areas have got to leave me before I can go with you on the mountains. I need the day to break. I need the sun to rise on me and all the gray areas out of my life. She goes, I can't go with you. You need to turn away and be like a, a stag and a gazelle on the mountains. She says, I can't go with you. I can't go with you. Wow. She's afraid. She's afraid. She's afraid to partner with him and what he has called her to do. She never saw him that way before. She never realized that he had an inheritance in her. She thought he was her way to have the, most, the maximum amount of pleasure in this life, and that was it. And she didn't understand that she was his inheritance. And so when he comes and says, let us run on the mountains, she, her fear manifests. She says, no, turn away. I, I can't go. I, you go. You go. And, and when, when everything is right with me, when I get it all together, when I get it all together, then, then I'll go. You know, it's interesting to me how the Lord will use broken and imperfect people to go subdue mountains to bring about massive spiritual victories. He actually uses messed up people. You know how I know he uses messed up people? Because there aren't any perfect people. The guy that you think did the greatest spiritual conquest, totally messed up, I guarantee you. Compared to perfection, I promise you, he's way messed up. He only uses that kind. There aren't any others. When he calls you to the mountains, he knows what he's working with. Did you ever consider that maybe the mountains are the way, one of the ways that he gets the gray areas out? So verse 1 of chapter 3, she seeks him again, 
in that old familiar intimate place. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. What's happened? He's withdrawn his presence. She goes headlong into a season of divine discipline. God gently withdraws when we say no to, to partnering with him. When we say in disobedience, we say, no, I can't and I won't, he will gently withdraw from us in order for that lovesick reality to bubble up and come to the surface in our hearts so that we will ultimately choose him. Chapter three, she enters divine discipline. And his correction, listen, is never his rejection. He never rejects you. He's always correcting you in kindness. Why? Because he ultimately wants you with him, not away from him. And so she's experiencing this night season without him. And she realizes that she can't live that way. She, can't, she would rather be on the mountains where it's scary than in the, you know, the familiar intimate place without him. You know, the principle is this. It's way safer for you outside of the boat and on the water with Jesus than in the boat with all the other disciples. I know the storm is outside the boat, I get it, but if Jesus is out there, it's way better for you to be out there. In the boat is a bad place if Jesus isn't in there. Verse four, she asked the watchman, have you seen him? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and I would not let him go. I held him and I would not let him go. Have you ever been in that place, that season of divine discipline, God withdrew his presence and you went back and you retraced your steps and you went, okay, where did I, oh, right there. Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive me. He goes, I've just been waiting for you to say that. Whoosh, the presence of God comes back and you go, ah, oh, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> that was bad. That's why he disciplines you. Not because he's angry with you. Because he wants you to hang on to him and never let him go. He's after intimacy. He's after love. And that's why he'll discipline you. Not because he hates you, because he loves you. So the discipline does its job in her. When she finds him, she would not let him go. All right, verse 6, chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to land this. She sees him in the rest of chapter 3 as a safe savior, one that she can trust, one who's strong and valiant. He's a king. He's royal. And he's got 60 armed men expert in war, and she sees him that way, and she begins to believe that she can trust this one. Chapter 4 rolls around, and she realizes that she's called into something more. Have you ever gotten to that place in your life in Christ, and you go, you know what? I really am called into something more. My existence is more than what I'm living for right now. And so she says this, until the day breaks, until the flat shadows flee away, instead of you turn, she goes, I will go my way. Where? Upon the mountain of myrrh and the hills of frankincense. 
And he says in response, you're all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. Going her way on the mountain of myrrh means this. The mountain of myrrh represents going through the challenges in life that are geared, hello, listen, they are geared to bring you death. We don't want to know about being crucified with Christ. We want to sort of quote the verse and act like we're Christians. We don't want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to the image of his death. We just want the power of his resurrection. Give me the first part of Philippians 3.10 because the other stuff, I don't know if I want it. We want to shout the glory, hallelujah, praises, do the charismatic kick, talk in Christianese, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, glory to God, praise the Lord. How are you? Praise the Lord, God, glory to God, amen, I'm good. We want to live like that and never experience the mountain of myrrh. The mountain of myrrh is essential and necessary for you if you will partner with God in this life. And the mountain of myrrh is this. Myrrh is the burial spice. For you to go on the mountain of myrrh means that God brings you to the place of death to yourself. She says, I will go my way. You know why it's her way? Because her way is not your way. And your way is not her way. Each of us have our own way. And it will take us to the mountain of myrrh. It will take us to the end of ourselves. Each of us has our own path in God, and it equals death. And can I tell you something about the mountain of myrrh? You don't just hit it once. You know, you sort of want to do like the 16, when you're a 16-year-old, you sort of said no to your friends and sort of said yes to Jesus, and you were lonely for about three weeks till you got involved in the youth group. You're like, oh, that was my mountain of myrrh, man. Total mountain of myrrh, man. I, three weeks, I had no friends. Yes, that was a mountain of myrrh. It was your 16-year-old version of the mountain of myrrh. But when you're 16, that version of the mountain of myrrh is not the 26-year-old, 36-year-old, 46-year-old, 66-year-old version. You'll touch the mountain of myrrh multiple times through your life. You'll continue to come to the end of yourself. Why? Because he wants a bride that's comparable to him. He, like Adam, is looking for a partner who's comparable to him, who said no so many times to the way that they wanted to live themselves, and yes, so many times to the will of the Father. She goes, I'll go my way to the mountain of myrrh. And it's in the mountain of myrrh that you touch the hill of frankincense pure worship, fragrant incense. That's what frankincense is. Fragrant worship and incense that comes from your heart. It's pure unto the Lord. It's only through the mountain of myrrh that you touch the hill of frankincense. I want to live this way. I don't want to live the other brand of Christianity that tells me I can do what I want to do, have what I want in this life, and Jesus just loves me any old way. You know what? He does love me any old way, but he has an inheritance in me that brings me to the end of myself and conforms me to his own image. It's called the mountain of myrrh. She says, until all the shadows flee away, I'm going to go. I'm gonna to go to the mountain of myrrh until all the dark and gray areas are out of my life. 
And in verse 7, he's, he's answering her. She's not gone there yet. She just said she would go. In fact, she hasn't done anything yet. Nothing. Since chapter 1, she's done nothing. And in verse 7, he answers and he says, Oh, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. He goes, you're perfect. Do you know that you stand before him perfect in Christ? You are perfect. The blood of Jesus has made you perfect. There's no spot in you. You go, wait a minute, I know I got issues. Yeah, but he says, there's no spot in you. Then he begins to make some crazy statements. He says, come with me. And he, and he says where they want to go on the mountains. He mentions the highest places in Israel. Top of Sinair. Hermon. Where? In lion's dens. He goes, I'm going to take you to the most vicious, scary places but you're going to be with me. It's going to be okay. Why? Why? Why is he going to bring you into partnership like this? Because of verse 9. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. You comprehend the heart of a God who's ravished over you. It's the very core of the bridal paradigm. We have a bridegroom God whose heart is wrecked in love with you. Not somebody else, not that big crowd, you. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart, he says. Do we understand the heart of a God that's burning in love and passion the end of the day, the core understanding of the way we're to relate to him is knowing that he's ravished. He goes, with one glance of your eye. He goes, the littlest movement of you toward me, ah, oh, my heart is undone. I am ravished. He goes, with one link of your necklace. You know what a necklace is? It's jewelry that a woman puts on to try to beautify herself. She doesn't actually become more beautiful. She's trying to beautify herself. He says, with one little attempt on your behalf to try to be beautiful to me, he goes, oh, one little yes. He goes, and I'm ravished. Do you know the God that's ravished over you? You comprehend what it means to live as a Christian in this life with a God who is ravished over you? You can't lose. You can't lose. I don't know what you're shooting for in this life, but to know that his heart is ravished over you you can't lose. How can you lose? He loves you. What more is there? God loves you. Not a little ravished over you. That's the way we live in this life, comprehending the love that an eternal God has for a broken people who are greatly in need, ones that are dark but lovely, this is the core understanding of the bridal paradigm, the ravished heart of the bridegroom God. It's what causes us to respond in abandonment. I can tell you a hundred messages on more commitment and more faithfulness, but if you don't comprehend the heart of the God that is ravished over you, you'll never enter into love and find your way to the mountain of myrrh in your life. 
the ravished heart of the bridegroom God is always calling to you. That you would enter into a depth of intimacy with him that is the superior pleasure of this life. In chapter one, she says, your love is better than wine. I promise you, oh, I promise you, if you touch the love of God, it's better than any potential, quote unquote, pleasure you could touch in this life. His love is better than wine. There's nothing this earth can offer that even comes close to the love of God. You don't have to earn it. He's ravished over you. You don't have to try to be better. He's ravished over you. You don't have to work your way up and perform for him. So he, No, he's ravished. He's ravished. You're stunning to him. But I'm not good enough. No, no, you said yes. You said yes. So we end this part of the story in verse 16. This is her response to comprehending the ravished heart of the bridegroom God. She says, awake, O north wind. Blow, O south. Come blow upon my garden. Let its spices, let, let it flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. What's she saying? She goes, see the north winds, they represent the cold, chilling challenges of life and the south winds they represent the warm refreshing of the presence of the Lord she says I don't care what happens I don't care if it's the north wind the chilling things that blow over my life she goes I don't care if it's the south wind the blessings and the refreshings of God that blow over my life she goes whatever has to come I don't care what it is I want it all to come and I want it to blow over my heart that he can be pleased with the fragrances that pour out let him be pleased I don't care if it's crushing or blessing. I just want this ravished God to take pleasure in me. The whole course of the book changes right there because instead of her thinking it's all about her and how much pleasure he can give her, she says, no, crush me if you please. I want you to take pleasure in me. That's the response of the heart that understands that God is ravished. He's ravished over you. Go ahead, let's stand.